This is Inside Politics, Election 2022. I'm Steve Harrison. On this episode, we're getting into a topic that we really haven't addressed in the podcast, school board elections. We'll focus on CMS, but school board elections across the country mirror many of the political debates and campaigns for state and federal office. To name a few, LGBT and gender identity politics, the effects of pandemic closings and how to recover from learning loss, and how issues concerning race should be discussed and taught in schools. Our guests are CMS board member Jennifer De La Hara, who's not on the ballot, but who has been outspoken in her disgust with conservative critics like our other guest, Brooke Weiss. She's the chair of Mecklenburg County Chapter of Moms for Liberty. Joining me are my regular co-hosts, Tim Funk and Jim Morrill. Hey, guys. Hey, man. Hey, and also joining us today is special guest, WFAE education reporter Andas Helms, who has been covering these races. Hey, Ann. Hey, good to be here. So uh, just leading into this, before we get started, we've got intense school board races here locally but this is something, and, and this is not unique to Charlotte, I think is safe to say, right? It definitely is safe to say. This is going on across the country. Very similar things happening at school board meetings, whether that's challenges to how race is discussed and taught, or whether it's uh, questions about sexually appropriate material in books. Um, we are definitely seeing national politics bleed into local school boards. And it kind of started, I think, in, with the San Francisco election, which I think was maybe last year, earlier this year, when they you know, maybe America's most progressive city in a way kind of turned on its board or some members of the board. And it's, uh, I think, in a way that kind of kicked it off. And the Virginia governor's race where education became such a big theme and helped the Republican win election. I think like everything else, the school's issue has been polarized and politicized. I mean, we just live in that time. Moms for Liberty, uh, at least nationally, have kind of allied themselves with the Republican Party. If you go to their website there, you'll see Ron DeSantis. You'll see words like woke. But, you know, the Democratic Party has been allied with teacher unions forever. So it's just it's it's just one more battlefield, it seems to me. You know, school board races in Mecklenburg County and Ann knows better than us, but um, they used to be pretty sleepy affairs. And now all of a sudden they're not. And for incumbents like Carol Sawyer, who appears to be the target of a lot of this is sort of like a perfect storm. You have national groups, national conservative groups that are coming in like Moms for Liberty. And you also have headlines about low test scores and how badly students are performing in Charlotte-Mecklenburg and how wide the equity gap still appears to be. And, And there are still hard feelings, I think, about the former superintendent and how he was fired and given a raise before he was fired. And so it's like all these factors sort of coming together. Yeah. And I've been covering CMS school board races for 20 years now, and people are always mad at CMS, but usually incumbents get reelected. I have only seen two incumbents be defeated in those 20 years, once in 2003 in a general uh, at-large election and once in 2013 in a district race. So Generally, people are mad that they go and they vote for their incumbents. And I'm not sure that will be the case this year. Like you said, there are all these factors affecting the way people feel about CMS. And you have, whereas they are normally in an odd-numbered year with the municipal races, lower turnout, this year you have CMS on the ballot with these huge high-profile state and national races. You have new districts, so people who maybe have won before in a district are now running with different voters. Uh, And all of the incumbents have, I think, viable challengers. Often they draw either no opposition or token opposition. There are people who are viable candidates and have gotten endorsements from some of the groups that traditionally back incumbents. 
And I think there's a lot of different issues like CRT and LGBT issues and things like that. And, you know, the, the superintendent. But I think a big undercurrent under all this goes back to the decision in, in Charlotte McLemore to have mostly virtual school for 2020, 2021. You know, I, I think that was kind of got the fire going a bit. Not among one faction. I mean, there's other groups that don't really particularly talk about that much. But it 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 has, I think, on kind of the Moms for Liberty, a more conservative side. I think that was that got the fire going. I think you're right. But it is worth noting that there were many people, parents and teachers, who were at that time saying, "We don't feel safe going back." And and this was a pre-vaccine era when some of these decisions were made. So. I think what the board would say we, was we did the best we could with the information we had at the time. We're ready to move this forward. Now, nobody is running on a platform of everything's great. I support the status quo. Everybody says, yes, these test scores are dismal. Yes, we need to get better. It's who can actually make that happen. In in Charlotte-Mecklenburg, correct me if I'm wrong, Ann, it, it doesn't seem like Moms of Liberty would probably have as much pull as in some of these conservative counties. But I think it seems like what you're seeing them do is is endorse challengers to the uh, incumbents to try to beat Democrats with other Democrats. Uh, Actually, that's not technically right. They did not endorse anyone except Sean Strain, who is an incumbent in District 6, even though he's kind of running as an anti-incumbent. But not uh, even a wink-wink kind of endorsement? Oh, well, and, and individuals, I think, may support. Brooke Weiss, the chair, has been very vocal about saying she would like to see Carol Sawyer replaced. Mm-hmm. She has said Stephanie Sneed, uh, one of the two Democratic challengers to Carol Sawyer, would be the best way to make that happen. But but what they would say is that on, as far as formal endorsements, they did very little of that. In my neighborhood, I saw uh, it's in one yard, I saw a sign for Stephanie Steed and another sign with Carol Sawyer with an X through it. So it, it's getting kind of intense. <laughs> yeah, she has definitely become the focus of the angst that's out there from the right. But um, this has been a weird year in that the kind of criticism that they've always gotten from Republicans, they're getting some pretty intense criticism. The board as a whole has gotten some very intense criticism about many of its decisions from African-American Democrats. Now, has Stephanie Steed welcomed the endorsement, not endorsement, but the support of some people in Mounds of Liberty, or is she not? She did not yeah. fill out their endorsement. They sent questionnaires, and she did not fill it out. She says she did not seek it. She's not publicizing it. There were people on Twitter who were calling for her to renounce it, mm-hmm. and she did not do that either because she said, I just, you know, why would I do that? I, I don't go around denouncing people. And why did uh, Carol Sawyer become the focus of all this? Well, you know, that's a, a great question and one that I think we'll probably be discussing with some of our guests. Um, she is one of the most liberal members of the board. Uh, Jennifer De La Hara, whom we'll be talking to, also gets a lot of that criticism, but she's not on the ballot. Um, she has a, a challenger who is well known. But yes, in many of the cases, what she's done has been what the majority of the board has done, what she says is she has become a target because she's so effective in her leadership. Is liberal good or bad in Charlotte Mecklenburg? Oh, that's a good question. You guys are the political <laughs> reporters. Well, I think it's more acceptable here than, say, Gaston County or Union County, Union County yeah. or some of the other counties around. So that might not be a. And that's I, part of the question is when you see billboards or you see really active Twitter wars or whatever. You have to wonder, are they just speaking within an echo chamber or are they speaking to the people who will actually make the decision in that district? Because bear in mind the way the district elections work here, you're not voting in six races. You're voting in the one for the district that you live in. People need to know about that and be informed about that. But 
if the people in District 6 are mad at Carol in District 4, that's too bad. They can't vote. <laughs> and I'll just say one more thing before we get started. You know, this race happened, Stephanie Steed and Carol Snyder happened before, four years ago. Carol won easily, like 16 percentage points. Um, it will probably be closer this time. I think probably everyone would agree on that. But I think the main thing is there is also a third candidate. And to beat the incumbent, the third candidate is that's a big problem because this is a this is a race to get to 50 percent. And the third candidate is going to draw votes. You know, that is going to make things hard for Stephanie Sneed to get over the hump. That's right. And there was also the whole redrawing of voting districts to take into account the 2020 census data that was delayed. And there were two competing maps. One of them was drawn by Carol Sawyer. One of them was drawn by Sean Strain. Carol Sawyer's version split up the three south suburbs, which Sean Strain currently represents. If he is reelected, he will have to be reelected by the voters of Pineville and Southwest Charlotte, which may be a little more challenging. Matthews and Mint Hill now are fall into different districts. And I think that created some bad blood. So, again, some of the people who are big fans of Sean Strain are really not big fans of Carol Sawyer. Let's get to it with our first guest, Brooke Weiss. She's the chair of the Mecklenburg County chapter of Moms for Liberty. It's a nationwide group formed in Florida in early 2021 in response to frustration over COVID-19 safety restrictions in schools. It's since grown to about 250 chapters across the country. And so have the issues the chapter addresses. Hey, Brooke, welcome. Thank you for having me. So, Brooke, uh, you are a newcomer to Charlotte, I think relative newcomer. And you're pretty new to school board politics. So tell me how you got involved in all of this. We moved to Charlotte in 2017. And yes, I'm totally new to politics. I sort of got activated and interested in politics and education and curious about what was going on when my daughter in the early spring of 2021, they were still in virtual learning. And she came over to me while she was in the middle of an assessment and she had her computer in her hands and she showed me the screen and she said, mom, are you okay with this? And um, I looked at the question and was really shocked because it was a question that in my opinion was minimizing the Holocaust. It was also inappropriately comparing the Holocaust to slavery. And so I just really as a, as a Jewish woman was offended by that. I don't see the value in comparing genocide to slavery other than maybe pitting Jewish people against black people. You know, it shouldn't be uh, a comparison or a competition as to which group of people suffered the most. And so what I found uh, maybe equally concerning was it took me more than three weeks of fighting to get into the school to view the rest of the test. Like I wanted to know, my goodness, what is my daughter studying that, you know, what book is she reading? What's going on in the classroom? And it took me more than three weeks for the, for the administration to grant me the opportunity to get in there and see it. And so I became acutely aware of a lack of transparency. And during that three week process, I heard one of our co-founders, Tiffany Justice on the radio. And I thought, well, maybe this woman can help me. And so I reached out to her and it was during the foundational period. Uh, Monster Liberty was only established three months before that. And so we ended up starting a chapter here and the Mecklenburg chapter was the 12th chapter in the United States. And so, you know, that was kind of my initiation and it's just 
really kind of been an education in politics. And the more I dig in, the more I find out and understand. So what was, I mean, I, I want to ask, what was the, do you remember more specifics about the question? The question, the book, whatever it was, I can't remember the name of the book, but it really, that was not the topic of the book. There was maybe like one sentence of, uh, in the book and that sentence was quoted in the question, but then the premise of the question really didn't have anything to do with what the book was about. So then I, I was like, well, why is this even being discussed? Why why is this question part of the assessment? Like I, I just had a, I, I found the whole thing to be really inappropriate and confusing. I mean, I ask because there's some, I mean, historians have made some comparisons or some linkage between the early days of Hitler and the Nuremberg laws and him pulling that from Jim Crow in the American South. And I, sure. I, I, and I, I recognize that, but this question was specifically comparing, like it was like a competition, like which one was, was worse. And that is the offensive is the offensive part of it. And so you and I have talked before. I think you told me that after that, that got you really upset. Yeah. And you kind of came out of the gate pretty intense. Guns blazing. You know, yes, I was angry kind of from an emotional standpoint. I started to learn some things and I was really angry and I came out charging and, you know, really quickly figured out this is not the way to go at it. Nothing's going to work, work here. And then started to develop relationships with people and start to understand more. So when you say guns blazing, what does that mean? I mean, is that like showing up? Well, to the I was board angry, or, you know, showed up at, at school board meetings and was coming from more of an emotional standpoint and being angry rather than a standpoint of let's figure out what's going on here and fix it. Since it then, wasn't productive, Steve. Not that? productive. So that was an issue around, I mean, slavery and the Holocaust around race. And in that I think got kind of brought into the issue of CRT. Is that fair yeah, to say? Yeah, so that's a word, you know, that's thrown around a lot, especially on the right. And so when I started to research it, because people would tell me when I brought up this question, I didn't even know what CRT was. I don't know anything about it. They would tell me, oh yeah, that's part of CRT. And so I started, you know, to, to study it and, and really dug in and did a whole lot of reading. And I still kind of feel like, what happened with that question kind of has to do with critical race theory or cultural relevant training, you know, teaching, whatever you want to call it. The, my understanding of that theory is that those theorists believe that there is a hierarchy of power that is involved in every single interaction and institution. And at the very top of that are white people. And I would argue as a Jewish woman that that Jews are are not are not white. But I understand most people in, in the public and in the world do and put Jewish people in the same category as white people. I still believe that that question came from the viewpoint that Jewish people, if you believe that, if you believe that there is a, a system of power in every interaction, that the Jewish people would be above the black people. And so they would be labeled as the oppressor and, and the minority, the black person labeled uh, as the oppressed. And that is just a, a theory that I cannot agree with. I do not agree with placing people in such a broad category based on the singular 
just on their the color of their skin, their race. I think there's much more to a person than that. And I don't think that you can automatically say that white people are inherently racist and that they can never overcome that. So the, the origins of kind of, of your involvement in Moms for Liberty stem from that question. And then the group has kind of moved on. I think That's where the say. origins are, but that's certainly not where I am right now. I don't think that's one of the most, I think it is an issue in education, but I don't think it's one of the most pressing. So what, what you hear, I mean, is that I, the critics of the group have said, well, it had this uh, kind of origin story and uh, anti-CRT. And now the, sh- the group. No, I believe the origin. I believe the origin of Moms for Liberty is in the fact that our kids were locked out of school. We wanted our kids back in school at the same time, you know, because they were in virtual learning. Many parents became aware of things that their kids were being taught that they weren't aware of and that they found kind of surprising and, and shocking and, you know, had no idea what was going on. So it kind of um, opened a curtain, sort of. Then parents really started to ask questions. Kind of a double, I'll do a double part question here that some critics have said, well, there was this emphasis on this question and CRT related issues. And now the group has kind of moved on from that. And so some people say, well, that's just, they're just uh, kind of whitewashing that issue or, or covering the CRT. Or that we're refrain, rebranding ourselves. Rebranding, a, yes. A so, local gentleman says. So I don't, I don't think it's so much as we're trying to rebrand ourselves. I think it's a, it's been a process of learning for us. And maybe we thought it was a much bigger issue. I'm not saying that it's not an issue. I just think there are some other things that are a much bigger deal right now, like the failing scores. I think that for a large part, people were not aware of how abysmal the scores are. For example, here in North Carolina, when your kids take the end of course tests, they receive a one, two, three, four, or five. I think parents kind of equate that with an A, B, C, D, or F. And if your kid comes home with a three, then you think, oh, my kid's passing, they're average, that's good. But that's not really what that three means. And so we've become more aware of the fact that our kids are not doing nearly as well as we thought they were. And that's really why we send our kids to school. You know, we send our kids to school to learn reading, writing, and arithmetic. At least least that's where I do. And to find out that their performance is so poor has been really eye-opening and shocking. So we're going to jump in. And that that was happening before before the pandemic. So the pandemic gonna, just exacerbated it. Anne's going to come in in just a second. We're going to talk about kind of the election and kind of these here and now issues. But I, we were, I mentioned a question about critics earlier. Kind of want to go just one more on that front. I mean, people have called... I've got a lot of them. <laughs> people have called your group divisive, fascist. What else? Am I missing any? Racist, uh, anti-LGBTQT. I've been called a Christo-fascist. I've just gotten used to being called a racist, which is so weird for me because um, I'm from New Orleans. Moving to Charlotte, it's been really difficult for me to adjust because this is a much more segregated city than where I grew up and where I came from. In New Orleans, you know, you can be on the trolley riding down one of the most expensive, the homes are the most expensive in the city. And, you know, two blocks away, you're in public housing. And my neighborhood that I I started my family in, you know, it was a very mixed neighborhood. My kids went to public schools. It just wasn't segregated the way it is here. And 
we had a very diverse group of friends. And so to come here and for people that don't even know me to call me a racist because I'm affiliated with Monster Liberty, it's been it's been hard. And Brooke, one of the things that people talk about a lot is that affiliation with the National Moms for Liberty and the fact that former President Trump's advisor, Steve Bannon, has promoted that. He said they're going to, quote, take over school boards. What's your connection with the national organization? Do you receive money from the National Moms from Liberty, from Bannon? Oh, no, no, no. There's no that. First of all, I do know that Steve Bannon is a big, big supporter, only in that he has Tiffany Justice and occasionally um, some of the chapter leadership on his show. I don't think he's a financial contributor at all. I don't know too much about that. Personally, I'm not a terribly big fan of his, but I don't know anything about him. The other part, no, we don't get any money from, from National. And despite what the public narrative is, we are not bathed in dark money. I mean, honestly, if I had a bunch of money, I would have a whole bunch of billboards plastered all over the city. You know, we don't have that. Um, The only money that our chapter has is generated through $30 annual dues and any kind of donations that we receive, which are few and far between. The only thing that we've ever gotten from National is uh, a branded tablecloth and a banner that's all. So there's there's not a whole lot of money. Let's talk about the school board race. Um, yeah. Is it fair to say you would like to take over the school board or see the school board replaced? Yes, I would like to see some change in the school board. And we're certainly promoting that. Moms for Liberty is one of many groups and, and many individuals who are upset about the direction of CMS. And that includes mm-hmm. some prominent African-American leaders who are concerned about the achievement gap. Let's talk about how you've reached out to them. To, you've had, I think, a meeting with the education chair of the Black Political Caucus or the NAACP. I'm sorry, the NAACP. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've had meetings with the African-American Faith Alliance. How has mm-hmm. that played out? What is your relationship well, with these groups? I've had a lot of meetings with other groups, too, that I'm not even going to talk about publicly because of the backlash that those two groups that you just mentioned received. I think it's a really sad situation because the only way that real meaningful change is going to happen is when diverse groups come together and are able to find common ground. And the students should be that common ground. There should be nothing political about the discussion around narrowing the gap, around improving scores, around making things better for our children. That's not a political issue. And so when people are willing to look past the national narrative that's been painted about Moms for Liberty and actually sit down and have a conversation with me, it's very, very, very easy to find common ground and uniting issues. And that has been my goal. And there have been a lot of people that have helped me with that. I haven't initially directly reached out to the organizations. There have been a lot of people in the middle that have helped facilitate those meetings. Talk about that academic ground on achievement, because the the issues that I think that have distinguished you and your group when you're speaking at school board meetings have been early on the, the how you talk about race and most recently sexual content in books, whether books should be rated and whatever you think of those issues, those things probably would not change the vast academic problems that CMS has. So talk about your choice of issues and I think what is Moms for Liberty promoting for dis- academics? I disagree with that statement, but to address the achievement gap, 
that is part of why we're so adamant about wanting change on the board, because there are representatives that say that is their mission and that tout equity, equity, equity all of the time. But when you actually look at their record, uh, the gap has done nothing but significantly widen. So their policies are not working towards their stated goal. So we need new leaders that actually are able to effectively narrow that gap. And so my conversations with some of the groups have been about what can we do to help that. Um, Part of some of the things that we've offered is to form reading groups, to tutor children, to have men go in and uh, mentor. It's a much more pervasive issue than I think parents are, are aware of. And so that's been one of our missions is to just bring awareness. But I disagree with you saying that that wouldn't help academic scores. For example, the book last year that we advocated for another book to be made available, The, the Girl That Fell From the Sky, I think the reason that the book was part of the curriculum was because of the theme. And the theme was great. There's no problem with the theme. But at the same time, you need to have books in the curriculum that are not quite so controversial and that they contain such explicit sexuality. There seems to be a lot more sexual content in schools now. And that's a concern that a lot of parents have. I think that's a damaging and distracting thing for kids. Sexualizing there's also a lot children. more sexual content on the internet, on television, and all sorts of pop culture. No, you see that? That's not true. And children do not have unfettered access to the internet. Not on their Chromebooks. They can't go visit Pornhub on their Chromebooks. For parents that it matters, it matters. You know, my children, um, we... I only have one left in the house, but we have software installed on her devices that uh, not only allow us to monitor, but limit what she has. And so to say that children have unfettered access to whatever they want is just not an accurate statement. But right. and it's not what I said. Time, I said that it is out there. Um, you talked about school board members who talk about equity and have not achieved it. And you have been very vocal about um Carol Sawyer. Yeah, can I, before we change the topic, I I want to finish. I have alcohol in my house. So it's out there. You know, that doesn't mean that my 16 year old daughter can come downstairs from her bedroom in my kitchen because she has access to alcohol and use it. So, you know, kids have drugs, uh, accessibility to drugs. Does that mean that we should be dispensing it at school? I think most people would recognize that drugs and alcohol are dangerous for children. And my contention is that sexually explicit material is also dangerous for children. Their brains are not mature enough and developed enough to handle it. And it doesn't matter that it's out there. It doesn't matter that teens, you know, may be having sex with each other. It's not a healthy thing. So back to the school board race. I appreciate that clarification. Um, You have tweeted several times encouraging people to vote for Stephanie Sneed as a Democrat. I have not. I I have tweeted one time encouraging people to vote for Stephanie Sneed, and that's been taken as an endorsement, and it wasn't. I have tweeted very, very many times in opposition to Carol Sawyer. So you can label me in the same way that people 
claim to be anti-Trump. I am anti-Sawyer. Uh, we have not made an endorsement in that race. I don't think I could even get an endorsement for Ms. Sneed, um, a Monster Liberty endorsement. Like It's not up to me. We have a process and membership and the members vote on it. I made one post one time and it's been blown up into this ridiculous affair. And there's another candidate. Right. And I think you told me the only candidate that Moms for Liberty has actually endorsed is Sean Strain in District 6. How did your endorsement process work? How many people actually did fill out your questionnaires or come and meet with you? In the 6th District, he was the only one. There are only two other candidates. He He was the only one. We got a lot of responses, but in many of the districts, I would say it was kind of half and half, I guess. You know, we, some we got responses, some we didn't. I think the lack of participation was concerning because parents that are kind of in my camp, one of the major things that we're upset about is the fact that we feel we don't have a voice and that our concerns don't matter to the school board and they don't care. And in addition to just completely discounting us, we're framed in a really negative way just for having those concerns. Like our concerns don't matter and they're not valid. And so- And you're clearly not alone in being opposed, particularly to Carol Sawyer in District 4. Why her and why that district? I don't appreciate the lack of response, not just to me, but from other parents of Carol. As far as the people that are up for election right now, um, she's the one. She advocated for extended closures when it was very clear that all over the United States and all over Europe, that schools were opening without issue. She successfully advocated for keeping our schools closed. So, yes, I think she needs to take ownership of that. But there were other, just to be fair, there were other board members. uh, It wasn't just Carol's vote who did that. The majority voted to do that. So why the target on her? Okay, so in District 1, Rhonda didn't do that, and we're not, you know, out there promoting Rhonda, but we're not anti-Rhonda either. In District 2, she's not up. Same thing. Oh, sorry, in District 2, she is. In District 3, she is not coming back. In District 5, she's not coming back. And in District 6, you know, Sean was one of the strongest advocates for trying to get our kids back. So that's why. Staying on this race, uh there's the billboard up on Independence Boulevard, an anti-Carol Sawyer billboard uh, highlighting that I think it says she kept schools closed. That's by an outside group that doesn't have to disclose their donors. We've talked about money before. You say you guys don't have a lot. But did you guys were you guys in on that at all and kind of supporting? Absolutely that? So, not. We're not allowed to do that. We're a 501c4. We are not allowed to fundraise for fundraise or donate. So, no, doesn't mean that some members of mine may have gone over and donated money to individual, you know, to individual candidates. And I would, on a personal level, encourage people to do that. But I have no knowledge of who did that. And we certainly are not allowed, you know, that's illegal. We're not allowed to do that. We've talked about the election. Let's pivot just a little bit more to some of those issues. We started with Moms for Liberty, kind of this issue about the test question, CRT. And a big issue with the group now is we talked about earlier the books and what's appropriate for kids. I think, Brooke, you've advocated for kind of a rating system. Is that right? Yeah, I believe Monster Liberty's mission, you know, is that parents have a fundamental right to direct every aspect of their children's upbringing. And so we should be the ones that decide what level of content our children are mature enough to handle. 
and certainly have some objections to what they're being exposed to in school right now, whether it's required reading like last year in ninth grade, whether it's in the classroom like this book is gay in seventh grade Collinswood Middle School, or whether it's uh, looking for Alaska in school libraries and middle schools. We believe that parents have the right to make the decision. So that doesn't mean like I want my decision that I don't want my child exposed to explicit sexual material to be respected, but I also respect another parent's right to make the decision that they do want their child to have access to that material. So as a chapter, we are not asking for the removal of books from anywhere. What we are asking for is a system that restricts access to books that have been objected to and received a certain rating. Is the idea, though, I mean, there are probably in CMS libraries thousands of books, and it's kind of the yeah. idea to go through each of them and assign no, a rate? No, there is currently a process to object to books. In my opinion, it's a very inefficient it's a very inefficient process and it creates repetitive work for teachers. You know, teachers have enough to do already to dump this additional work on them that they're not going to get paid for is just not right. And so um, the way the process works right now is one parent objects to one book at one school and then a book committee reviews that book over the course of 20 days, I think, and then a decision is reached, but that decision only applies to that book. So if I objected to a book at Audrey Cowell, then something would happen. But that doesn't apply to all the rest of the schools. And I feel like, why should we have teachers at every other single high school have to go through that same repetitive process? Instead, the process should be handled at a district level and made a decision made at the district level that applies to all school libraries. And I think that teachers should have to follow the same um, requirements that the libraries follow. So if a decision is made to restrict access to a book in a library, then the teacher shouldn't have free access to that book in her classroom either. And so we've proposed a very objective rating process. Uh, The way that movies are rated, it's not a subjective process. It's a matter of is it there? So there have to be a certain number of curse words. You know, is there nudity? Is there explicit sexuality? Is there penetration? You know, um, is there graphic violence? Is there smoking? Are there drugs? The fact of the matter is that most parents, when they receive the titles that their children are reading, do not have the time to read those books. It is also a fact that some parents do not have the capacity to read those books, but it is no less important to them. And so parents, should get an informed consent that describes the content, not just the theme. Is there a concern, though, that I know you said you guys don't want to ban books. You just want that kind of guidance for parents. But that if I'm a school administrator, I have something kind of controversial that may be a problem. And I'm saying I'm not dealing with it. The book is out. I just don't want to deal with this hassle. And it kind of therefore it becomes kind of a de facto not banned, but the book goes away. I mean, is that uh, is that a fair concern that people have? What do you mean? Like they wouldn't want to go through the book. Re- they wouldn't want to go through the reading process. Well, they wouldn't want to go that the book would have kind of sensitive material or difficult material and they would be concerned. And the teacher, let's say hypothetically, feels this is worth it. This is an important book, but it's tough material. And they think like, I'm going to have to go through this process. There are people concerned. 
I, I'm out. I don't, I'll, I'll take something else. We don't object else. to difficult material. I'm Jewish. I think we need to talk about the Holocaust and teach the Holocaust. Okay. That's a really difficult topic. So it's not that we don't want kids struggling with difficult themes. You know, people have asked me, well, you know, is it a, is it a gay thing? No, it is not. You know, this book is gay. I thought was really, I was shocked at the level of description in that book, but I would have also had the same objection if it was the Kama Sutra. So I don't care what kind of sex it is. I do not believe that a man, a literal manual to sex acts should be in a classroom. I I mean, that's my personal opinion. So I'm entitled to it. And as a parent, I should be able to make the decision as to whether my kid, you know, literally receives instructions on how to give an effective hand job. Well, Brooke, thank you so much for the time. And uh, we really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. That was Brooke Weiss, the chair of the Mecklenburg County chapter of Moms for Liberty. We'll have analysis of that interview later in the show. But first, our next guest, CMS board member Jennifer De La Hara. She's held an at-large seat on the board since 2019. She's a native of the Burke County town of Valdez and a graduate of both UNC Chapel Hill and UNC Charlotte. She's taught English as a second language and has served as director of diversity and inclusion for the Transit Authority in Louisville, in addition to owning restaurants in Charlotte. She's also run a consulting company focused on cultural competency training to educators. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, So I want to start going back to April. The board held a special meeting to fire Superintendent Ernest Winston, and you prefaced your remarks uh, with something that Anne has characterized as a bit unusual. I also want to be very clear that despite certain radical political forces taking a victory lap that they made this happen, that no one... No parent group, no faith-based group have led me to my decision today. The facts will speak for themselves, and I'm astonished that others are celebrating right now when it has nothing to do with you. Tell us what you meant by by that statement. Yes, we had received specific uh, requests. Um, you might call it demands from uh, faith-based groups and, and really from Moms for Liberty. But I chose my words very wisely that day by framing it as no parent group and no faith-based group without naming anyone specifically, uh, because I was a little hesitant, to be honest, about how much credibility I even wanted to give them. And I knew that um, the the leader of the chapter uh, was sitting also, or would be, and of course she was, recording in the chamber that day and was taking credit. Um, I didn't want to uh, empower them with that at the time, but I thought it was really important to be clear, and it's absolutely true, that their request to have him fired and from other community members did not factor into my personal decision. And I don't think of the board. We came to our own conclusion separately. When you said like the president, you're speaking of Brooke Weiss in the chamber. Yes. Mm -hmm. Moms for Liberty being one of those parent groups. Mm -hmm. And you also said kind of faith based groups. Who were you kind of getting at? That's two different two different people. So who are you getting at with that comment? I was speaking about the African-American Faith Alliance led by their chair, Dr. Dennis Williams. And others who have spent significant time in our chamber um, and also, you know, communicating directly to us and through surrogates about their wishes as well. 
So we're definitely going to talk about the Faith Alliance a little bit later, but wanted to start with Moms for Liberty. You and others have described them as an astroturf group. Mm-hmm. You've said kind of more about national issues and local politics. So just tell me more about that. What do you mean? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm differentiating between, I think, the way they describe themselves as more of a grassroots group, you know, trying to frame themselves as local. And, you know, let's be really clear. This is a parent. This is not a group of parents. It's running a bake sale. Um, it, it, they are absolutely connected at a national level. Their platform and their ideas are espoused by the likes of Steve Bannon and Governor DeSantis and Secretary DeVos, who just recently spoke at their July um, conference in Tampa, uh, calling again for the abolishment of the Department of Education. They have a lot of surface level appeal. I mean, who doesn't want to agree with what's characterized as a group of moms who are concerned about education? I mean, I think that sounds great. We, uh, not just on the Board of Education, but we as our greater society need to peel back the layers a little bit and look at who they're connected to, what that power structure looks like. Uh, money that's made available to them and the messaging that they're receiving from the top down. I mean, certain things that they're asking for, it's national messaging. It's not crafted as just a local uh, initiative. Um, it's coming from the top down. And so that's what we mean when we talk about AstroTurf. Now, Brooke Weiss has said, uh, she said, look, they don't get any national money. Now, she's very clear in terms of the linkage to the national group and Steve Bannon, et cetera. But she said, I think it was $30 a year for right. the members. And so is it possible to kind of be a grassroots group, but still independent, no money, but following kind of national talking points and themes? Do you see what I'm saying? Possibly. I think that they say a lot of things, though, that we shouldn't just take at face value. Um, You know, we have a lot of groups and not just them that show up at our board meetings and and state their intentions. But the impact of what they're advocating for, you know, doesn't necessarily weigh out. So I've obviously not looked at their financials, you know, here locally. But the fact that there is, you know, big money that is giving them an engine to get those national talking points to advocate for specific things. I mean, they're the recipients of it, whether they're receiving the actual dollars or not. I can't I can't speak to. We sometimes hear that same concern, for instance, when local teachers who are members of North Carolina Association of Educators or Charlotte Mecklenburg Association of Educators People who don't like what they're saying say, well, they're speaking for a national teachers union or there's a group, uh, Red Wine and Blue, that emerged about the same time as Moms for Liberty. Nonpartisan, like Moms for Liberty says, but much more progressive. Do you have the same concerns about them being local people who are speaking in affiliation with a national group? I I think if they were advocating for dangerous policies, yes, no matter if you're coming from the left or from the right, I I think we should all be concerned. I've not seen anything from the red, wine and blue group, um, in my opinion, of course, and we all have different viewpoints on these things that are advocating for something as um, dangerous as some of the um, the initiatives that Moms for Liberty are advocating for. So dangerous. Mm hmm. Let's kind of let's go through them, Mm -hmm. how you see it. Yeah. The dangerous policies. Well, right. I mean, at at best, they are distracting and we can certainly talk about some of that. And at worst, I do. I think they're dangerous. I mean, we spoke very openly, for example, at our August legislative retreat um, about uh, many policies, uh, um, not legislative, legal retreat. I'm sorry. Um, And one of them were our policies that help protect our LGBTQ students. Uh, We do not force out our students, meaning that if a child is questioning and they confide in a 
with the um, trusted adult, teacher, counselor, principal, whoever, um, our, we do not force our staff to call the parents and let them know. And that is by policy. And I will couch that first by saying there's very little control that the board, local board of education does have because we're under so much control at the federal level, state level uh, of governing bodies. But this is a policy that we do have in place where we take the whole child into consideration, including the child's wishes, um, and don't necessarily call their parents and let them know about their questioning or their desire to transition, for example. That, I think, becomes dangerous when they are asking for us to uh, change that policy. And, of course, as soon as we had that legal retreat, we started getting emails calling for that to be changed. And it's and it's framed under, you know, parents' rights. Parents deserve to know. But I want your listeners to understand we parents do have the right to know. We There are also FERPA laws in place that we comply with. And at any time, they can call the school and get access to power school records that show, let's say, if there was a change in gender status. So we're not going to deny, but it's, it's requiring the parent to do their job of being a parent if they have a concern about that. But we're also not going to force out students. And we've had multiple psychologists and, and licensed clinical social workers who have written us in uh, also response to that meeting in August saying, do not do that. It is bad for our students and advocating that we not make any changes. I want to ask just kind of on a, a counterpoint to that, mm-hmm. the idea that kind of, quote, outing a student might put them at risk at home. I mean, it seems like there are things CMS, the information that the CMS does send home that obviously could put kids in trouble too. Like you guys, if a kid is failing, the parents know if they are skipping school, the parents know if they are fighting, the parents know if they are having sex at school. I mean, there's probably some serious punishments being handed out at home across homes across the district in, in those situations, too. Is that fair? Multiple psychologists and social workers have written us with the data showing that it can be dangerous for the parents to find this information out. Um, and that's and I, I trust that, you know, no, no school based staff is taking this lightly. I think it's not one person making that decision. You know, folks are coming together, looking at the whole child, understanding what's going on, uh, possible abuse that they're experiencing in the home. They I, I think they're able to help um, come to the best decision for that child. And that's the way that our policy stands. That's best practices based on, you know, multiple people who've expressed that to us, uh, qualified people uh, beyond just us on the school board. I certainly want to continue to protect the rights of these students. So you've got Moms for Liberty coming at you from the right. And that's pretty traditional that that has happened in the time that I've covered school boards. You've also gotten some pretty fierce criticism from Democrats, um, including County Commissioners Phil Malik and George Dunlap, former school board members. What do you think is going on with that? I think that they these groups who traditionally are from the right and also Democratic elected officials that you're mentioning, they find common ground um, in a couple different things. They find common ground in um, isolating First of all, that Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools works in a vacuum. If you listen to the way that they speak, all of those other organizations I just mentioned, the federal level, the state legislature, the state board of education, who have immense impact on what we're able to do, what we're able to teach, the standards that we're able to teach, our funding and resources or lack of, which oftentimes is the case. Those play into what we're able to do and the and d- the degree to success that we have with it. Um, neither of them 
mentions all of those factors. When they show up in our space or speak at their meetings, they often talk about the lack of leadership only uh, with Charlotte Mecklenburg schools. And honestly, as a Democrat myself, that's disappointing, particularly when we have nine seated um, Democratic leaders on the county commission, that they don't speak even more forcefully around us working together to fight for um, things like the Leandro case, which I know you know is a 28-year-old lawsuit um, where the you know, state Supreme Court has said that there's been a failure to provide for our children. None of us should be surprised in North Carolina that our our children are not doing as well as we should be doing when the state Supreme Court has actually said, state, you have failed to provide what's commonly known as a sound basic education. And as Democrats, I think we need to work together to fight that common battle. But unfortunately, it's become sort of a weaponizing tool. Look, make no mistake. And I think that the many of the commissioners, and of course, not all of them, we have we have some advocates who understand that you, if you want to change outcomes, you need to invest, not divest, no business, no business divest from its interests. But for whatever reason, when it comes to education, unfortunately, sometimes both Republican-led legislatures like we have now and also local Democratic-led county commissions choose to divest from education, hoping that somehow we're going to defund our way to educational equity. It makes absolutely no sense. And so we touched on the African-American Faith Alliance earlier, which is a group of individuals. I don't think they're specifically political, but many of them that I know are, again, Democrats. They're very focused on being intensely frustrated with the state of academic performance for children of color, fairly understandably. And you mentioned some of the requests or demands, and I've seen through public information requests, some of the emails. One of those requests was that their own chair or president, Dennis Williams, be considered for the superintendent's job. After And after you chose Hugh Hattabaugh instead as the interim, there was a meeting between Hugh Hattabaugh and the Faith Alliance that um, I think didn't go very well. Can you talk about a little more about what happened and how that may play into the upcoming search for a superintendent? Certainly. Um, first, I think it's really important to state that I do think our community members, including the Faith Alliance, should be we should all be enraged and outraged about the state of public education and the disparities that exist. The problem that I have is when we create faux rages around certain things that may not even be rooted in a common set of facts. So I'm not dismissing anyone's intent around what they describe as their, you know, rage or, or being upset about the current state of the school system. I'm just always advocating that we direct all of that energy um, in a direction that's going to actually help. Like, for example, I welcome their advocacy alongside us in fighting for Leandro or for or for whatever, um, you know, uh, we've laid out in centering the needs of the students. You can't just sort of show up and just point fingers. It's not getting us anywhere. That's never worked before. So I just I think that's really important because I don't want I don't dismiss them categorically. Um, I do think, however, they have been very problematic um, in the way that they've uh, gone about conducting uh, business, if you will. Um, I, before I even talk about uh, suggestion that their chair, Dr. Dennis Williams, be our superintendent, I think it's important to back up for a moment because even before that happened, they were putting pressure on then Superintendent Ernest Winston to um, use our money, like some of our federal Title I dollars to fund um, some of their churches, and I don't remember which ministers, um, after school programs. They were putting pressure on him to um, hire family members. 
And I mean, he confided this in me because it was frustrating. It wasn't it was very much characterized that Ernest Winston just pulled away from them for no reason. Um, but it was because they were asking for political favors and they were asking for money. And Ernest Winston is an honorable man. And yes, I came to the conclusion that he wasn't the executive at the time to do the job that we needed to do, but never have I questioned his integrity as a person. And I have the utmost respect for him and the way he handled this faith alliance group that were asking him for special political favors or money or, you know, and, and he just, he said, no, I'm not going to conduct business that way. You need to go apply just like everyone else. Um, I do know that a week before we did terminate the superintendent's contract that I got a call from a minister um, a- asking me to consider Dennis Williams to be superintendent. I thought that was so bizarre because, to my knowledge, there were only nine of us who knew that this was happening and then our general counsel. So let's get back to that. How did they find out? We'll come back to that. But let me say this. I, in the moment, I acted like I didn't have any idea what he was talking about, got off the phone. And Dennis Williams actually called me that same night. The reason I think that's I didn't speak to him and answer the call is that I had previously reached out to him for several months trying to build bridges because I acknowledged again that they should be enraged and outraged. And I wanted to be there as you know, an at-large representative of the school board to build bridges. And he never would return my call. And now all of a sudden, he wanted the job. And because a minister possibly had warmed me up, I mean, I never made any commitments. I sort of, it was an awkward conversation because I couldn't legally confirm I had any idea what he was talking about. But we knew that the leak was out there. And then, of course, at the same time, the email started flowing in from uh, Brooke Weiss in particular and others. Now, they didn't necessarily identify themselves as Moms for Liberty, but you got the sense that they were of sort of the same group. You got the sense it was coming more from the right. So somehow there was a leak to this group. And uh, they wanted him appointed as our superintendent, you know. And we probably should note for listeners who don't know this, Mm -hmm. it sounds fairly random that a minister wants to be the superintendent. Dennis Williams is, in fact, a longtime former CMS administrator, even before my time, and actually served, I believe, in an acting superintendent role for a little while. So um, you know that and I know that. But um, I think a lot of people might be like, this is just crazy that some minister wants to be the superintendent. Of course, you did not choose him, at least at this point. I right. assume he could get into the mix when you do a search. Um, I mean, but- he's welcome to apply. He's called me three times since, and I've not once, I still have his voicemails on my phone. I have not once taken his call because I think it's highly, um, what's the right word that I'm trying to use? I think it's highly inappropriate that he would reach out now. Um, so he, I think he, just like everyone else, needs to apply and go through the process. In your view, when Ernest Winston pushed the Faith Alliance back and Uh said he wasn't going to do these alleged favors. Uh Do you feel like that they saw it as an escalate, that they then escalated their criticism of the board and CMS as a result of that? Absolutely. They immediately started going to the county commission and speaking in front of uh, in front of them about, uh, you know, making adjustments to their budget and and got aligned and and started pushing the same messaging around um, somehow holding us accountable. I think they felt a sense of they needed to hold Ernest accountable for not listening to them, hold us accountable. And uh, and they started a whole campaign to do that. 
Okay, quick time out. This was not the first time the WFAE had heard the allegations that De La Hara mentioned about the African American Faith Alliance and its chair, Dennis Williams. Since June, education reporter Andas Helms has reached out to Williams and other Faith Alliance members, but has not been able to get a response to these allegations. We reached out again after De La Hara's comments, but didn't get a response then either. And you've mentioned before in this conversation, the Faith Alliance and Moms for Liberty sending emails. And, and, and Brooke Weiss has said, you know, they've they've worked together and had outreach. But I get the impression from you and others that that is doesn't make you all particularly comfortable or you don't feel like it's coming from the best intentions. It's in really important that we understand. I mean, they make claims all the time that they ignore us. They don't want to meet with us. I respond back. They invited me to a meeting last week, for example, to come hear some expert that was going to, you know, tell us how to save us all in education. And I had to write back and say, sorry, I can't be there. I'm actually going to be in Florida at the Council of the Great City Schools annual conference listening to experts. I mean, this whole idea that we're not getting advice or we don't know what we're doing or we're not engaging with best practices. Um, so they, they offer opportunities like that and then, you know, say that we don't engage, but we do. I also think it's important, you know, their initial arguments when they first came on the scene, they were concerned about critical race theory. It's hard to show up in good faith and have a conversation. And the starting point be, why are you teaching critical race theory when we're not teaching at all. I mean, you have to be rooted in a common set of facts around something. It's like trying to talk with election deniers or climate change deniers. Uh, You've got to show up in good faith and be rooted in the same conversation. And so to that end, yeah, I I don't think it's going to be productive because it doesn't make for a two-way conversation if I have to continue repeating, we don't teach CRT, we don't teach CRT. And until they believe that and approach in a different manner, like it's just not, that's, that's not showing up in good faith. And I don't see how anything around those specific conversations are going to be productive. Brooke Weiss told us that she came into this out of concern over a test question that she said her daughter had at Audrey Kell kind of comparing slavery and the Holocaust. And she kind of told us like, well, I came in really hot. And she kind of said that it's CRT type issue, but that they've moved on in a way to this issue of books. That seems to be the the kind of predominant theme now. Um this idea of a book rating system or being able to more easily, I think, Anna, as I'd say, more easily object to a, a, a questionable book. What about that? What are you saying? Yes, that is what they're on to now, book banning. But let's not forget that the phase in between that was you're muzzling our children. So for they moved on from critical race theory to the anti-masking policies. They didn't agree with the county or the school board's policy. And so we got a lot of angry emails accusing us of child abuse Uh, You're muzzling our children. This goes against our American rights, um, you know, to have freedom to not wear a mask, um, even though that was at that time best practices um, nationally from DHHS out of Raleigh, um, from Mecklenburg County Public Health and our school system. Um, So from that then went on to um, uh, anti-gender support plans, you know, addressing our LGBTQ students and now uh, book banning. Um, they have suggested this uh, grading um, system again, when if you Google it nationally, this is not just something locally they've come up with. This is a national plan that has been put out. Um, but th- the whole idea of that 
presumes that we don't already have a plan in place or we've never done anything. When we adopted this new springboard English curriculum two years ago, there was community engagement. There was parent engagement. There was student engagement. I'm not going to apologize that they weren't involved two years ago and paying attention to the process. But the whole idea that it wasn't scrutinized uh, with these curriculum arguments just does not hold water. Uh, we do have policy in place. They can challenge books. And I suggest they follow that process. But make no mistake, that is, I think, why they're engaging, you know, in, in so much activity now and possibly even with um, elections is because they want to be able to dictate. And I find that ironic. I mean, their name is Moms for Liberty. And I would like to suggest that the way we do things now actually provides more liberty. We're not going to force one parent group can't dictate what other parent groups um, can read or whether or not the very existence of their children as, you know, gay children, for example, should be acknowledged in the classroom. So I, I would say there are other viewpoints that say freedom is about expanding protections, about expanding um, our viewpoints, and they have a very uh, myopic, narrow viewpoint that comes from the right. I don't think the group has a problem acknowledging gay students in the classroom. I, I, I think the issue is over that parental notification. Is that is that fair to say that they just want the parents included in on that if there is a transition in and terms again, of pronouns and names? And I w Again, I would remind them, every parent, and not just them, but our listeners, has the right by the federal government under FERPA to find out that information. And so Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools is not breaking the law. But no, I, I do question even the acknowledgement because we've seen, and these are um, tangential groups, but I think they run along the same thread. Our teachers and staff are under great pressure from, you know, the Mark Robinsons of the world, our lieutenant governor that, that put out this website that wants uh, parents to report if, t if students, if teachers, excuse me, are discussing race or discussing um, sex or sexuality in the classroom. And so it's, it's, it's polarizing. In that sense, that that's not healthy for our students. I mean, if you're actually questioning their existence and maybe they spoke differently to that, that is my interpretation of what they are uh, um, advocating for to, as if if we just ignore it, it doesn't exist. And let's remember, they are a group of moms. They are not Mecklenburg moms. They do not represent the majority. There is no groundswell here. I do think they've been very distracting and now they're moving to a space of being dangerous, but they are not, you know, representative. We have 141,000 students, uh, most of them with moms, some of our students with two moms. And we, we need to acknowledge that they are a small group that has defined that their way of thinking should be dictated to others. And I think that is using the sense of freedom and liberty as a sword, wielding more of a sword to dictate that only my view is important. And I like to think of our enshrined rights as more of a shield, a shield that opens up and expands protection around our students, not to be dictated in more of a sword-like fashion. So, Speaking of the sword metaphor, mm -hmm. the Mecklenburg County Commission funds you guys, not entirely, but a piece of funding. And they there was last summer's dispute when they withheld money. Commissioner Vilma Leek, I think, has said, made a reference to educators, I think, 
some should be arrested for she not did. doing their job. She Is that right? That was on a public meeting. Okay. And then you've had uh, others who withheld the money, including Pat Cotham, an at-large member. And you wrote a column in in, uh, in Queen, Queen City Nerve just recently where you – let me see if I can find it – you wrote, some say she's an independent voice on the commission. I say she is a wolf in sheep's clothing who creates unproductive divisions within the Democratic Party. Tell us about that. <laughs> Just about Pat, uh, Pat, Commissioner Cotham or well, about we Commissioner Lee? We can Lake start with Commissioner well. Lee and then, and then move on. Um, well, first, I, I just I do want to acknowledge this because I think this is another common ground. Uh, where sometimes the the Moms for Liberty group and the and, and Commissioner Leak, obviously a democratically elected official, find common ground that makes me very nervous and dangerous, because during the pandemic we got a lot of emails from 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 quote unquote the right, if you will, uh, pitting the public against teachers. Teachers are lazy. They want to be in virtual because they just don't want to work. They're indoctrinating our students. Meanwhile, I've got teachers going, if we had the ability to indoctrinate our kids, we'd indoctrinate them to turn their homework in on time or to go to the bathroom before they come. I mean, it's just gotten ridiculous, in my opinion. Um, And so... There's been this, you know, of course, they talk a lot about the teachers unions, It's the teachers unions that want all this and da, 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 da. that's the typical messaging from the right. And it's 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 created a lot of animosity towards teachers. I mean, I've been out at the polls over the past week. And as I've passed out that little red card, the Apple that has the CMA endorsed teachers and you say, you know, so and so is endorsed by teachers. You've got sometimes people will quit back and say, well, how about somebody that's endorsed by parents? So that exists, this animosity toward parents, uh, I mean, towards teachers. And so when you have someone like Commissioner Lee come along and start talking about we need to be arresting teachers, I think that's where they find common ground. And I have seen her, Commissioner Lee and Brooke Weiss, you know, be chummy together in our chamber at school board meetings. So I know to some degree they have a relationship. And I just think that's where, in part, I'm raising the red flag Around when we have Democratic elected officials who seemingly have some relationship and they're finding common ground in some of this uh, dangerous rhetoric, that makes me nervous. Likewise, you know, with with Commissioner Cotham, she she does she actively works against um, certain Democratic candidates, and as I detailed in that article, you know, has made some pretty shocking. Accusations against our Mecklenburg delegation, which, as we all know, all but one currently are Democrats that are representing us in Raleigh. And, you know, I've been saying all along, somehow we have to find the common ground, I think, should be if we are Democrats <laughs> fighting for what we think we're not getting out of the Republican led legislature out of Raleigh. But instead, there seems to be this shift. Um, and sometimes I think it's in part because it's politically convenient. Um, to just try to isolate Charlotte Mecklenburg schools um, and not take into consideration the delegation. So I, I do I, I do find her actions um, very problematic. And I've been I've witnessed her be praised publicly by Republicans. And I was also very clear. I, I don't mind that she's considering the ideas of Republicans or engaging with them. I think that's healthy for our democracy. But I don't think you should be promoting them. In the 20 years that I've covered Charlotte Mecklenburg schools, it has been rare for incumbents to be defeated. People are always mad about CMS and the school board for something, but only twice in those 20 years have incumbents been defeated. Uh, this year, we've got four incumbents on the ballot for the six district seats. 
all of them have, I think, viable opposition. Do you think things could change this year? I do. I do. And I don't want to, you know, pronosticate necessarily on on specific elections. At the end of the day, I have to work with whoever. So I'm I'm playing my cards, you know, tight to my chest for the most part on the races. But I do think that um, there could be some change. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, so it, it will be interesting to see what happens come November 8th. So the last few months have brought, and especially even more recently, just a steady stream of data about how bad things are academically, especially for the black and brown students who make up the majority of CMS. And I realize that nobody's running on, you know, I support the status quo. Things are fine as they are. You'll be up next year. I suspect you'll face this similar challenge. Why should voters continue with the current board? We have made significant changes on our board in the last year. Very few people actually you know, show up and watch what we are doing. You might be one of the few who understands the governance framework that we've changed, the level of uh, monitoring that we're doing, the strategic allocations of funds to meet specific goals. Uh, A whole new level of leadership has been taking place, ironically, at the same time that all of these groups, including the Faith Alliance, including um, uh, Moms for Liberty uh, uh, or, or other folks showing up saying you need to produce a different plan while all that was happening. We actually were working on it, actively engaged with a consultant and changing our plan. So that was quite disappointing to see people. That's why you can't take what people stake their intentions are and what they want at face value, because oftentimes these things are going on. But very few people actually watch our meetings, although, you know, I I could argue it's primetime TV sometimes and they should. (laughs) You know, we have had a massive shift. If you listen to our interim superintendent, he speaks often now about um, the importance of the goals and guardrails. And, and, And that's our framework under our new strategic plan and how that's given him specific framework to work under and to to direct to staff and that's working well and we're hearing positive feedback and building systems on the back end that are helping us to really make sure that we're on track and that we're all rowing in the same direction. So again, you know, we also cannot simply isolate what happens at Charlotte Mecklenburg schools as only the board of education uh, is isolated in responsibility for it. And I take my role very seriously. I think we do have a role to play, obviously, but in also a state that is ranked 42nd out of 50th in public school funding. And when you compare it to our ability to fund our de- our relative wealth of our state, we drop to 49th out of 50th. And Mecklenburg County is ranked 83rd out of 100 counties when you compare it to our relative wealth. Said another way, in Orange County, they invest in their students about $1,500 more per student. That would be over $200 million more. I am tired of asking, why aren't we producing different results when I think we should also be asking, why aren't you willing to invest in our students? Why is it when you look at our students, they don't deserve to be invested in? And I know that sounds harsh. Like, are you accusing someone of not caring? Well, people accuse us of that all the time. They say, well, you don't care about kids. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm the one out here actually advocating. And I have to be because I have no funding authority. So that is part of our role. So we're in a strange place beyond the Board of Education because you're in a governance role. But you sort of don't give up that advocacy role because you have to look to the federal government, the state government, the county government to give you the resources. We know, for example, at Allenbrook, 
went from an F school to a C plus school. How and why? Because they're actually able to meet in small group instruction with extra resources, teaching kids to read. We want to move the needle. We need to be able to hire new teachers sitting sitting down beside students in small group instruction, working with them to move the needle. That takes resources. You know, people like to joke or not joke, but say, throw out, well, we can't just throw money at the schools. First of all, let's be very clear. North Carolina does not throw money at the schools and we have to change our language and our language around it because schools uh, gives this idea that it's this phantom district that money's just disappearing. No, no, we are investing in the future of our city and our county. We're investing in our future workforce and our future neighbors that we hope are kind and accepting. We're investing in our future leaders. Education has gotten this bad rap where it's it's being framed as this drain on society. And I say, no, we, we have to invest in the outcomes that we want to achieve. And if I may, let me make this point also. That is where part of these different groups like uh, Moms for Liberty, when they show up and they wear their shirt and they say, we do not co-parent with the government. It reminds me of a very sad day in our history when President Trump came out State of the Union speech and said, uh, talked about the failing government schools. Make no mistake, that wording is very specific, government schools. We do not co-parent with government. What it does is it, it, it instills distrust in the public in the school system and our public institutions, one, by the way, that has historically been, you know, uh, um, thought of in a positive light as a, a foundation of our society, as the success of our public school system. But when you're constantly throwing off on the government schools, the government can't do anything right. The government's indoctrinating. This is where you remember how I talked about distracting and dangerous. This is where I think it also becomes dangerous because you're laying the groundwork for more January 6th type behavior, which was an outcry against the government. They didn't trust in the elections. They didn't trust um, that the government institution was uh, was accurate and true. So let me kind of flip something that you said about how people sometimes disregard all the things that are outside of the school board's control, whether that's funding, the pandemic, whatever. Mm -hmm. There are still things that are within the school board's control including decisions about how to respond to the pandemic, including everything related to the hiring and contract revisions and firing of Ernest Winston. How much do you and the board have to own some of this anger that's out there? Is, is some of it legitimately directed at you all? For the superintendent? I, I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. Because uh, that is our job. And um, I know that it didn't work out as the, you know, um, seven of the school board members that are there now, you know, hired him um, for a reason that they thought. And, and I think he did do a great job with certain aspects. Uh, I, it was really hard in the moment of the pandemic, though, to tease out how much was his lack of being able to execute amidst the chaos of the pandemic. And, you know, understand, again, how under-resourced our schools were. It's not like even though we got a federal infusion of cash from the COVID dollars, we weren't given extra COVID czars <laughs> to oversee the implementation of everything massive, I mean, that, that we had to accomplish around trying to track the numbers of the COVID cases and all of the protocols. So it was... Um, 
it was a really hard time. I also um, know that we had a lot of sincere fear. And I, I know that right now it's very popular to try to rewrite history and people want to act like, well, it wasn't that bad, you know, in a pre-vaccinated world. But it absolutely was. Uh, we were in very uncertain times. Uh, families spoke out loud and clear on both sides, including many who did not want us to return um, um, to in-person learning. So it was complicated. It was very complicated um, and not typical school board work. Um, and so we were listening uh, and relying upon the experts of others. It was a hard time. I'll, I'll tell you uh, one of the things that was most challenging about it. Sometimes folks would send me the same article. <laughs> and advocate for one side or the other based on their worldview and their lens. And sometimes, you know, a, Dr. Fauci would say something like, yes, students should be back in school, comma, as soon as community spread levels are low. And if you were of the camp that students should be back in person, then you would only focus on the first part of the statement and say, see, see what Dr. Fauci said. And if you were more on the side of protecting community health and spread, you would focus on the second part of that statement and point to that and the fact that most of the time we were in a, in a middle or high during all of the pandemic. And so they, people couldn't even believe we would consider it, given that Dr. Fauci had just said, only do it when you're in low community spread. So these were, these were complicated decisions. We made the best decisions that we could at the time. And, and I stand by, you know, whatever votes I personally made. What are your colleagues, Sean Strain, uh, you guys are on polar opposites on the board, I think, on some issues. And he had been very critical of the of Superintendent Winston long before uh, he was let go. Does does he get any credit looking back for kind of beating that drum earlier? No, because he wasn't the only one that was critical. See, you all only hear what you know is said from the dais or what gets leaked to the media. That doesn't mean that the rest of us didn't have concerns. That doesn't mean the rest of us weren't you know guiding him. I think it was reported we had put him on a, um, I don't want to call it performance review plan or something like that, but something similar back in October. Many of us were doing our jobs leading and providing guidance and evaluating along the way. Just not all of us feel the need to, you know, bang our fists from the dais and, and create a, um, you know, a, a media moment to get to get in the paper and that sort of thing. And and so, no, I, I don't think he exhibited any leadership beyond the rest of us. And I do think you cannot publicly say you have questions and concerns about your chief executive until you have taken action. But there was the contract vote where his contract was extended and the clause where he was given a raise, the clause was added to give him the job security that eventually led to a rather large payout a few months later when he decided he was not the guy for the job. And and Sean Strain was the only person who voted against that. So that seems like something that people would look back and say, why did you take that action if you knew he was potentially on a troubled path. I think when we took that action in April or May, it was still unclear. Our staff was inundated, inundated with multiple extra tasks to do uh, pr uh, proposals that I had to send back to the State Board of Education and to different bodies and, and report back to Mecklenburg County Public Health and constantly tracking of the cases with not a lot of extra specific help to be able to make that happen. And so there, there, it, it was a little bit difficult um, to, to tease out 
Um, and so I think that was six months prior to us really starting to collectively at the board understand, uh, you know, where we were and, and, and taking a different path. So, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us on the show. And before we go, if you have any other closing any other thoughts, <laughs> I, I guess I could just loop back to um, the dangerous and the the distracting when, you know, we started this conversation talking about Moms for Liberty. Um, it you know, we are seeing the national, you know, we were talking grassroots versus AstroTurf, you know, and just last week, um, some comments were made at our school board meeting and they were being tweeted by, you know, the Christopher Rufos. Again, I, I really want our readers, uh, listeners to to come away with understanding that the that he's a person who started the uh, anti-CRT uh, rage, if you will. So that they're immediately we're getting national attention. And um, Brooke Weiss uh, and Moms for Liberty showed up on Fox News to talk about Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools. So it, it really is an organization that's expanding its reach. And that's where I'm a little worried now that they're becoming more dangerous. But also they, they can be very distracting um, because as they're continuing to advocate um, what's ca- what's framed under, you know, just their concern for their children. And I do believe that when they say it, it's just when we're advocating for certain policies and the resources um, to do the things that they're wanting to do and taking up staff time at the level that they're taking it up, then we're not able to respond to the many other things that we're trying to do around good governance. I'll just say before you go on the flip side that Moms for Liberty was on Fox News. Mm-hmm. But hey, you know, Fox was going to amplify their voice and give them a platform. And um, it seems like it would be hard for them not to do that. I mean, they feel very strongly about this. They're speaking, you know, they go from speaking at school board meetings in front of a handful of people in the in the chamber to being on national TV. It just seems like naturally what they would do. Well, I don't. Yeah, I don't begrudge them for going there just for the sake of going there. The point I'm trying to make is, uh, as you said, and they present themselves as a nonpartisan group. But yet I don't think that Fox News is nonpartisan. I think their ideology definitely comes from the right wing. And this is where it goes back, looping it back to the part about dangerous is when they're uh, calling working with Betsy DeVos, who wants the abolishment of the Department of Education and these right wing ideologies that often also lead us to January 6th type activity by instilling distrust in our public institutions like public education. I think that we should all just, we need to raise the red flag and I hope that your listeners pay attention. All right. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. So that was school board member Jennifer De La Hara talking about the perfect storm of cultural issues and school performance issues that are a part of the CMS race, that are part of national school board races, and I think also the national election. What did y'all think? You know, I think that uh, I think she made a I gave a spirited defense of the school board, but you know, like she said, I mean, they're caught between the, the conservative national group Moms for Liberty and. Uh, what she said was the the left. You know, she was squeezed from both sides. School board members are squeezed from both sides. And she mentioned specifically the, the some members of the county commission and the Faith Alliance, which is I don't know what what their bent is, but presumably more more uh, progressive than not. So it's a, it's a tough tough race for incumbents. You know, as a student of politics, I, I was pretty fascinated by their talk about this dance of competing alliances and fierce battles, but 
I have to say, you know, when political parties and wings of of these parties basically become the vehicles to navigate something as complicated as the school issue, I think it can easily become about winning the argument about, you know, coarse social media zingers and 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 more heat than light. And I just think students deserve better than that, you know. I thought uh, when Jennifer was speaking about kind of the things being a distraction from uh, from moving the school district forward, I think there's a lot of validity in that. But I also think that, man, if you're an incumbent sitting on that board and that, was, that heat is coming for you, then, yes, you're going to see it as, as, as a distraction because um, – and I think you talked about this um, – you could kind of look at the the anger and the concern from different groups and parse it and say, well, you know, that maybe this is misplaced and this, is, but at the, kind of the end of the day, when you step back, there is a lot of frustration. When you look at it from 30,000 feet, that seems to be clear. Yeah. And one of the things that I heard from both of our interviews with Brooke Weiss and with Jennifer De La Hara is there may be some level of agreement on certain issues. I mean, nobody wants sexually explicit material being taught in schools. Nobody Everybody wants academic achievement and does not want these huge gaps. But it does in some ways boil down to whether you say trust and support the education system, the educators in that system to do the job, give them more support, not less, or whether you say we don't trust that system and we need to get parents and families more directly involved. And that's a legitimate philosophical rift that's out there and I think that is going to play out in school board elections, but maybe also in a lot of levels. It's still, you still see it pop up in this cycle on the national races. I mean, it's not one of the headline issues, you know, those clearly inflation, abortion, et cetera, but there's still an undercurrent there of the school issues that kind of propelled Youngkin in Virginia and that we talked about earlier, you know, San Francisco, it's still, it's still out there. hasn't gone away. I think your observation about a 30,000 foot view is right on. Um, you have the frustration over low test scores, uh, uh, student performance, equity, uh, the superintendent. You have that combining with, uh, you know, a wave of uh, conservative national sentiment that started with the whole masking policy during the pandemic. I think Brooke Weiss had a, a good point, you know, that parents pay their taxes, they send their kids off to get educated. And then they get these abysmal test scores. So you, you just have to ask some basic questions. On the other hand, Jennifer Delahara had a good point, I thought, in making it clear that parents are not a monolith. You know, one parent may say, you know, I don't want my child exposed to that teaching of American history where the white guys are the bad guys and it's all about slavery and Native Americans. But the other parent might say, that's exactly what I want for my child, the unvarnished, not the candy colored version of history. So uh, I think both sides are, are, we need a timeout, you know. And I think this latest round of test scores is a perfect example of how you can look at things through different lenses. I mean, the, the national scores, the nation's report card showed that CMS had dropped precipitously, that it was at, at least by one way you parse the data, it is the lowest it's ever been. The racial gaps are big and widening. That's horrible. But the other context it gives is to compare CMS with 26 other urban districts across the country. And CMS looks pretty good Mm. and looks pretty good compared to national averages in a lot of cases. So if you're the incumbents, then what you're saying is, look, these are not problems unique to CMS and we haven't got all the solutions, but we're doing 
at least as well as most and better than many. And with all this polarization, there there doesn't seem to much be much room for that kind of nuance and that kind of subtlety and that kind of say, well, here's what really is going on, you know, one side or the other. It's all everybody wants to get their point of view and, and win the battle. Yeah. And the other side is not just wrong. It's dangerous. Yeah. And you understand why people are saying that, because, again, both sides have gotten to where, you know, you hear people talking about teachers and public schools as the enemy. You can see why people consider that dangerous. And I think it's, I was just going to say, I think it's fascinating. You talked about those, the drop in scores on the NAEP, the NAEP tests, the huge drop, almost certainly due to the pandemic and the decision for virtual school. Um, What I think is interesting is that uh, from the kind of African-American Faith Alliance, a lot of the, the black leaders pushing for this and kind of citing this, that there hasn't been still today a, from 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 them questioning the decision to go virtual during the pandemic. Um, there wasn't at the time that often came from more uh, white and affiliated and conservative uh, parents. And so you have this interesting thing where this this huge test score debacle that has happened um, was a result most likely of, of, of virtual school, but th- that many of the people who are kind of complaining about it now weren't calling for in-person education. I just think it's, it, it's, it's so complicated. In our mask about liberty or are they about public health? I mean, they can be about both, but uh, if you're on one side or the other, you're not going to give in to the I, other side. I think the whole thing is supercharged on both sides because when it's your kids, you really care. I mean, you get emotionally involved and uh, with what's best for your kids. And, uh, you know, that leads people to be, uh, you know, extreme in some cases on both sides. And, uh, you know, it makes it more hard to find common ground. I remember uh, last summer when the county withheld the $56 million or, you know, from CMS and, and the county, county manager, Dina Diorio, gave a presentation as to why they were doing it. And she put up these slides comparing the number of low-performing schools in CMS to the number of low-performing schools in Wake County. And it was pretty disingenuous because the amount of poverty in Charlotte is much higher here than in Wake County. And that is that is a huge correlation between income and performance. And uh, it, 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 I think sometimes when you kind of jump into issues like test scores, you can look at it and say, this looks really bad. But then when you you take a step back, like you said, and compare them to other urban districts, other places like Charlotte, CMS is not as bad as people are saying. And that's the dynamic they've been dealing with ever since I've been covering it, which is and, and they will say we're so highly regarded nationally and we're so disparaged at home. And that's an oversimplification. They have had some. It's a good T-shirt. Yeah. They've had some (laughs) some leaders in particular, some former superintendents who are really good at selling the idea that CMS has all the answers. And if CMS had had all the answers at any of those other points, we wouldn't be here today. And they do have supporters at home. There, There is still a lot of support for public education here. But there's a lot of criticism. And some of it is absolutely fair. And especially on social media, some of it's just kind of over the top as social media tends to be. All right. Well, listen, that wraps up this show. Tim, Jim, Ann, thank you all for this great discussion. And uh, we are going to be back next week after the election to break it all down. 